Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. CDs, 8-tracks, cassette tapes, and records have all been ways for us to hear our favorite opera singers and complete operas. But what about early recordings? Find out more on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. We are delighted to invite you to the 18th Annual Opera News Awards. This year's honorees, soprano Lisa Davidson, soprano Erin Morley, and tenor George Shirley, will be feted at a black tie dinner gala on April 16th at the Plaza Hotel. Musical tributes by Stephanie Blythe and Latonia Moore will be performed in honor of the recipients, and this exciting gala will also feature appearances by Lawrence Brownlee, Joshua Hopkins, and Anna Maria Martinez. The Metropolitan Opera Guild acknowledges with great appreciation our sponsor for the 18th Annual Opera News Awards, the Lloyd E. Riddler Lawrence E. Deutsch Foundation. For more information or to purchase your ticket, please visit www.metguild.org awards or call us at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. I'm sure most of us love to be able to revisit our favorite singers or discover new singers through recordings. But have you thought about how that technology began? What about the first recordings? What did they sound like? I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we're joined by musicologist and lecturer Diana Marin as she discusses the evolution of early recording technology and opera. So, imagine a large room, a warehouse, where you can see a recording equipment, a chamber orchestra, 12 to 50 musicians, a conductor, the singer, plus a recording technician, and a conductor assistant, mirroring what the conductor is doing to the orchestra so the singer could sing. The singer is singing the prize song from Wagner's The Master Singer, while one of the recording technicians pulls and pushes the singer away and toward the recording horn. 
during the singer's pauses and the instrumental moments, some of the orchestral musicians would have to almost run towards the recording horn. And of course, the singer would have to step away to give them room. And all of that so that the instrumental forte dynamics could be captured. As soon as the recording is finished, the singer says to the recording technician, I do not want to be pushed physically. To what the recording technicians answer, I was not pushing you physically, Mr. Olstrom, only artistically. A second recording technician approaches the singer and states that after a couple of minutes in acid, the recording would be ready for the singer to hear. The director, on the other hand, approaches the singer saying that, and I quote, you wasn't loud enough. People don't want records they have to listen to. I know. It is an odd affirmation, but please bear with me a little longer. The singer immediately responds, which is the right rendition of the area, Mr. Dinkson, to which the director responds, and I quote again, who cares about the song? It is the phenomenon. That's what the people want, the noise that comes out of a box. The scene that I just described to you is from Two Sisters from Boston, a 1946 musical comedy film directed by Harry Custer and starring the Danish-American opera singer, Lawrence Melchior. The reason why I chose this scene and why it is so impressive is that it says so much about early recordings and the beginning of the recording industry. As said earlier, one of the recording engineers tries to subdue Melchior's enormous voice by pulling and pushing the tenor towards and away from the horn. And that was only one technique recording engineers would use in order to get the best of the inscription process resulting then in the best audio quality possible. This can help us start thinking about how the recordings impacted operatic singing, both technically and aesthetically, how it affected the reception, meaning the way the opera audience listened to opera singers. Talking a little bit about the machine, we need to understand that before the invention of sound reproduction technologies, we are told, sound will be ruled by its ephemeral nature. Once it's out, it would die, and that's it. It existed only as it went out of existence. Once telephones, phonographs, and radios populated our world, the sound lost its ephemeral character. Suddenly, the human voice gained a measure of immortality. Edison invented the phonograph in 1877. He lacked the marketing perspective to make the most of his invention, though. Edison thought of the phonograph as a business device to be used in companies for business purposes only. He resisted the idea of using the phonograph as an instrument, a tool for musical purposes. Luckily, inventors such as German-American Emil Berliner thought of this machine as something valuable to the music industry. And by changing a few things in Edson's phonograph, 
Just as a way of avoiding Edison patent in wax cylinders, Berliner created the gramophone using now a flat disc instead of a cylinder. We will talk more closely about how the recordings were made, but it is important to have in mind that the interest of other inventors and the developments made were not lost on Edison, who turned his attention back to the phonograph. And now, with inventors eager to create the best machine to record and reproduce sound and music, now we have an industry. From the last decade of the 19th century to 1925, we have what is called the acoustic era of recordings. Those recordings were prior to the electrical recordings. They were 100% mechanical and analog. The process was focused on the energy in the sound of the musicians themselves. The sound was captured via an acoustic horn, which drove the mechanical stylus that engraved the groove in the wax master. Energy is the key word here. Musicians would have to play louder. Singers were instructed to sing louder, sacrificing dynamics and nuance. And all of this in order to get enough power from the sound waves to move the mechanical stylus and get the inscription on the wax cylinder or flat disc. A limitation associated with the acoustic process was the limited range of frequencies which it could produce. Even under the best conditions, by 1917, the acoustic system was still restricted to a narrow band of frequencies, about from 250 Hz to about 2500 Hz. And even this range was achieved only by the best operators and equipment. This was effectively a range about the E or F below middle C to about three octaves above middle C. The first example that I would like you to hear is the great Italian baritone Giuseppe De Luca, singing a beautiful rendition of Verdi's Traviata di Provenza di Mar il Suol. This recording was made in 1907 and is part of the Phonotopia Records catalog. Listen to how beautiful it is, but also to how it lacks low and high registers, giving us just the middle frequencies, the middle range of the voice. Also pay attention to how low is the volume of the piano in comparison to the Lucas voice.
Returning to the energy issue, it was a common practice to rearrange some pieces as some instruments would not record well in the acoustic era. Some instruments like the violin, viola, and the entire string family would not produce enough energy to be well recorded. Such instruments would commonly be replaced by brass instruments, for example, who would naturally produce a louder sound and, with that, record better than the string family. Some instruments had to be adapted, modified, in order to produce a, a louder sound, a sound with enough energy to be recorded by the acoustic process. And that's the case with the Stroh violin. The Stroh violin was invented by electrical engineer John Matthias Augustus Stroh. And the Stroh violins and violas were a radical redesign of the traditional version of those instruments. The instruments would employ two aluminum horns. But to do that, uh, Stroh had to get rid of the wooden body of the instruments, keeping only the main central wood piece from the neck to the straw. He would add a metal axle under the bridge so he would capture the vibration from the strings and that would come to a diaphragm that would lead to two aluminum horns. The big one was the main horn and it was pointed towards the recording horn, which made the instruments both louder and more directional. The speaker, as I would call it. The small horn would face the musician's ear. You can think of it as an early 20th century version of an ear monitoring that performers would use to be able to hear themselves what they were playing. The first and second violins in viola in orchestra would often be reinforced and in some cases to be studied entirely by two straw violins and a viola. This was a standard practice by 1905 and continued until the end of the acoustic era in 1925. Musicians would have to adapt their technique to play the straw violin. So if musicians had to adapt, adapt how they played, would singers have to adapt how they sang as well? So now you can imagine, you can have an idea of how acoustic recordings were made. And under such limitations, it is safe to say that adaptation technique and style was in order. Sound recording was a process that could involve more than passively duplicating what was effectively a concert hall performance. Performers and technicians alike learned that it might even be advantageous to change aspects of a particular musician's performance style in order to take advantage of the machine's peculiarities. One example is the vibrato-less singing as an attempt to get the singer to adjust to the recording characteristics of the day and thereby register with greater clarity on the disc. Edison's rival, Fred Gaisberg, who first recorded Caruso for the Berliner Gramophone Company and subsequently made him the most famous singer in the world, recognized that not all singers could record equally well. 
He went so far as to credit Caruso's extraordinary success to his performance technique and singing style. We together produced, and I quote, the one perfect voice for recordings. Another voice very much well considered for recordings, in addition to her live performances, was uh, the one of soprano Claudia Muzio. Here, I invite you to listen to Muzio singing Giordano's masterpiece, La Mamma Morta, from the opera Andrea Chernier. This is a recording she made for the Edison Company in 1920. Listen for the control of the vibrato and how the body of her voice is somewhat thin, but her, her voice is very clear and we can understand every word she's singing. Jonathan Stern says in his book, The Audible Pass, and I quote, that early skeptical listeners essentially had it right. Sound reproduction technologies are inseparable from the sources of reproduced sound. To put it another way, the social organization of sound reproduction technology conditioned the possibility for both original and copied sound. Performers had to develop whole new performance techniques in order to produce original sounds suitable for reproduction. An excellent example of a singer who was a master of the art of adapting to recording media was Italian tenor Tito Schipa. In this 1925 recording of Una Furtiva Lagrima, Donizetti's famous aria from the opera L'Elisir d'Amore, we can listen how Skipa can bring nuance, an impressive change in dynamics, clarity, and beauty of timbre.
The new electrical system significantly extended the recorded frequency spectrum. The acoustic system, as said before, had recorded very little sound above about 2,400 Hz. This limited frequency response requiring the reorchestration of the music to provide any musical content in such limited range. The electrical process expanded the recorded spectrum to a much more natural range, which extended reproduction to about 6,000 Hz. The electrical system was also able to record instruments at the low end of the frequency spectrum, below 200 Hz. This meant that instruments such as the double bass could now be recorded. Previously, with the acoustic process, string basses had to be augmented or replaced by a tuba or a bass clarinet, each having a larger bass output to reinforce the bass notes during the acoustic recording. The electrical system was also more robust than the acoustic process. The recording system could now survive the effects of percussion in recorded performances. So the electrical and mechanical control of the cutting styles of the electrical system were now able to cope with percussion, including bass drums and timpani. Until more or less the beginning of the electric age, recorded sound was exclusively that picked up by the recording horn. Technicians felt that the only limitation they had with the recording and playback media was groove integrity, how the sound would be inscribed in the wax cylinder or the flat disc. Very intense sounds destroyed the grooves and ruined the recording, as previously explained. A kind of natural equalization occurred, as I could try to describe in the Melchior's video at the beginning of this lecture. If there was any sound correction, such as acoustic changes, moving away from the sound source, presence of sound absorbing materials, and etc., this should be done before or at the time of recording. With the microphone, there was a need to investigate the minimum and maximum frequency cutoff limits. And if any sound correction would be necessary, such as acoustic changes, it was easier to resolve. Here we have again Italian baritone Giuseppe De Luca singing Verdi Straviata di Provenza il Mar il Suol. Now in an electrical recording made for the Victor label in 1929. Try listening to how clear it is in comparison to the acoustic version, even having a small orchestra playing with the singer. And last but not least, pay attention to how the dynamics and timbre are more prominent. Provence, 
1926 methods of high quality recording and reproducing of music and speech based on telephone research. Engineers Maxfield and Harrison share some interesting thoughts about the comparison between the acoustic slash mechanical and the brand new electric recording processes. While the electrical process is still needed the energy of the sound or as they state the direct use of the power of the sound being recorded to operate the recording instrument. Now it added the use of high quality electric apparatus with vacuum tube amplifiers in order to give more freedom to the artist and better control to the process. According to the authors, the amount of power available to operate the recorder directly from the sound in the recording room is so small as to make it extremely difficult to make records under natural conditions of speaking, singing, or instrumental playing. We just need to imagine the musicians playing so close to each other and having to play forte all the time so they could produce enough energy to be recorded. With such an arrangement of musicians, it is very difficult to arouse the spontaneous enthusiasm which is necessary for the production of really artistic music, they say. And the others have a good point. With the microphone, the musicians could sit at ease more nearly in their usual arrangement, and all are using the instruments which they would use were they playing at a concert. In addition, the microphone is now sufficiently far away from the orchestra to receive the sound in much the manner that the ears of a listener in the audience would receive it. In other words, it picks up the sound after it has been properly blended with the reflections from the walls of the room. It is in this way that the so-called atmosphere or room tone has been obtained. Now, let's listen to Claudia Muzio singing Giordano's La Mama Morta uh, again but now in an electric recording for, for Columbia label made in 1935.
According to Maxfield and Harrison, with the flexibility introduced by the use of electrical apparatus, including amplifiers, the control of loudness is obtained by simple manipulation of the amplifier system and is in no way related to the difficulties of the relative loudness of one instrument to another. The only problem for the studio director in this case is to obtain the proper balance among the various musical instruments and artists. Let's listen again to the talent and I say very intelligent singer, Tito Skipa. In this 1929 recording for the Victor label of Una Portiva Lagrima, try listening to the naturalness in sound of the musicians and the singer. One complaint about electrical recording is that it loses the three-dimensionality of the voice, but gains in timbre. What a difference. And that was only four years after the acoustic version we listened to before. In Civilization and Its Discontents, Freud says, and I quote, that in the photograph camera, man has created an instrument which retains the fleeting visual impressions, just as the gramophone retains the equally fleeting auditory ones. Both are at bottom materializations of the power he possesses of recollection, his memory. With this citation and the focus on the memory, 
I opened my conclusion by saying that recording had a major influence on operatic singing. First, it made it possible for the listeners to build an auditory reference, so much so that some recordings became references to how a certain opera should sound, as we can see in Tomasini's 2017 piece for the New York Times called The Best Opera Recording Ever is Maria Callas Singing Tosca. Hear why. Even though this 1953 recording of Callas, joined by Giuseppe Di Stefano and Tito Gobbi, was done under studio conditions, he says, and I quote, it's hard to think of a recording of any opera that nails a work so strongly that seems so definitive. Second, how now not only the singers had to be suitable for live in studio performances, but they also had to stand up to their recordings since the recordings themselves became a reference for how their voices should sound like. We can see this in an interview given to James A. Drake by Milton Cross, also known as the voice of the Met because of his work hosting the Met Opera Saturday afternoon radio broadcasts. The radio broadcaster says that he grew up listening to the Victor Red Seal records and how that influenced his listening. When asked about having heard Caruso in his prime at the Met Opera, he says that he built his reference to Caruso's voice through the Red Seal records. When asked if Caruso sounded the same as in the Red Seal records, Cross answered, and I quote, I didn't think so. His voice sounded smaller than it did in recordings. I was expecting to hear a huge voice. And instead, it seemed a good deal smaller, but also much more nuanced. He continues saying, in Celeste Aida, for example, his tempo was considerably slower than it was on the recording. And he did a lot of shading that you don't hear on his recordings. Of course, from the little seat I had way up in the balcony, he says, I was hearing him from far away. In the recordings, his voice was coming directly into my ears from the Victrola. He ends up saying uh, that Caruso doesn't sound like his Red Seals. He doesn't sound like Caruso, he says. And that, in retrospect, he shouldn't have listened to those Red Seals at home over and over before going to the mat so he could compare them to the singer's live voices. Cross states that, and I quote again, at the time, I didn't realize that all of the singers used a different technique. Well, not a different technique in the vocal production sense, but rather a different approach when they made studio recordings. For my final thoughts, I would like to bring Stern again and say that we can listen to recorded traces of a past history, but we cannot presume to know exactly what it was like to hear at a particular time or place in the past. In the age of technological reproduction, we can sometimes experience an audible past, but we can do no more than presume the existence of an auditorial past.
Also, recordings and sound reproduction changed the way we listened and experienced the performance. They helped the listener to build an auditorial reference. They also helped to create and consolidate interpretation models that, if not followed by the singer, it's wrong. And I would like to wrap up this lecture saying that in the studio, technical decisions are static, and static decisions are technical, and all decisions are musical. And we should think of recordings as sonic autographs. That was musicologist and lecturer Diana Marin discussing the evolution of early recording technology. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date with all things opera. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.